welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. If you happen to be visiting with us, thrilled to have you with us. If you're a regular, glad you're back. Uh, I've been doing a series interspersed with a couple of other speakers on the subject of uh, generosity. Um, This is message number four. So in the first one, I talked about open heart, open hands. In the second message, I entitled it The Paradox of Generosity. Last time, we talked about um, generosity and the new community, the king, his new community, and people of generosity who inhabit it. And this morning, I want to talk about the foundations of a life of generosity. But before I do, some of you will have noticed um, maybe a week or so ago an article in the Herald or uh, in a number of other newspapers about an American tele-evangelist, a well-known figure in the faith movement, and Kenneth Copeland was asking his followers and his supporters for literally tens of millions of dollars so he could buy a, a private jet to ferry himself around to his various appointments. Uh, He joined a number of other American tele-evangelists who have done the same. Jesse Duplantis raised 54 million for his jet, and Creflo Dollar, what a name for a prosperity preacher, um, raised 65 million for his. Copeland claimed that traveling in commercial airlines agitated his spirit. I I identify with him, don't you? Um, but I suspect that he flies first class or business class travel, and um, I can't imagine that agitating my spirit too much. Um, I, I suspect he didn't fly economy class. Um, he should try cattle class like the rest of us and see what that does to his body, let alone his spirit. Um, he said that traveling on planes with the public on these public airlines was like getting into a long tube with a bunch of demons. How to, how to win friends and influence people, I suspect. And I don't know how you respond when you read stuff like that, but I cringe. I just think, oh my Lord. And I, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know um, Kenneth Copeland or anything about him and his needs, but I just sometimes wish that people would be wiser in the things that they say and do. Because what happens when things like that transpire is that I think people's misgivings cause them to miss their giving people's misgivings over the way funds are used like that cause them to respond by missing their giving. And I think what we have to be really, really careful of in situations like this is overreaction. I remember Bill Johnson saying that when we react instead of responding to an abuse, in this case the prosperity gospel, we often create a doctrine more destructive than the one that we reacted to. And there's real truth in that. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites, and he encourages us to spend a a lot of time thinking which is worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite. Um, Our personal miserliness, all right, our not giving at all is not a good response or a sensible one to the abuses that we see in terms of finances um, from certain ministries or organizations. So 
reacting to what we see as abuse by personal miserliness and refusing to give is the the very thing that C.S. Lewis was warning us about. What I want to do this morning, apart from comment on that, is to talk to you about building a life of uh, generosity. Now, when you build anything, when you build a building of any kind, a crucial part of your planning will revolve around the foundations that are necessary to sustain the edifice that you're, correct, uh, that you're constructing. Foundations, as you know, aren't generally a visible part of any structure, but they are nonetheless absolutely crucial for the integrity and the alignment of, of that building. I don't know whether you know, but when they build a skyscraper, um, the foundations ultimately will determine how high they can build. And some skyscrapers have foundations that go down over 100 meters. That's 30 stories down so that they might be able to go, say, 70 stories up. And if you want to build a life solid in terms of going up, you have to be sure to make sure you do good, solid foundational work. And I think there are foundational concepts that are required if we are going to build a life of sustained and radical generosity in all of the mediums that are available for us to be generous with. I want to talk to you about three of them. Uh, There may be more, but I think these three are essential. They aren't necessarily in any order of importance. The first foundation, I think, or aspect of the foundation um, that we need to consider in building a life of generosity is the awareness, or if you like, the revelation that God owns everything and we are simply his stewards. Now, I'm aware that steward actually isn't a word that we use a lot in our colloquial uh, language. When we do use it, we are almost always referring to something that the Bible actually doesn't refer to. So if you go to the dictionary, which I did, and looked up steward, it says a person employed to look after passengers on a ship, on an aircraft, or on a train. Now clearly the Bible doesn't use the word steward in that way. In Bible times, a steward was a manager, much more like a CEO or a CFO in a large company. They were the ones who were in charge of running the large household or the family business. They weren't the owner of the household or of its possessions, but they were responsible to the owner for the resources, the financial affairs, and often the staff of the business or the household. So they, are, they, they functioned in the owner's stead as a surrogate for the owner. So the steward utilized and managed the belongings of the owner. They didn't, or at least they shouldn't, act with any sense of entitlement, and ultimately they had to give an account of that stewardship to their owner. And you'll remember, I'm sure, that Jesus told a number of parables and stories about stewards who were called to give an account for their stewardship. So one of them begins in Luke chapter 16, a certain rich man had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man had been wasting his goods. So the owner summoned him. So into his presence he comes. He is summoned by the owner and he has to give an account for his stewardship. So the first thing that's really necessary for us to build a life of generosity is to understand we are stewards and not owners of the resources that we have in our hands. In Psalm 24, verse 1, the Living Bible begins, the earth belongs to God, and everything in the world is his. 
You might remember the old King James, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. In the book of Leviticus, God is speaking to his people, the Israelites, and he says to them, the land cannot be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are foreigners, you are my tenants. So the land on which you are living, on which you are farming, doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me, the Lord says, and you are my tenants. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, David is speaking and he says, but me, who am I and who are these my people that we should presume to be giving something to you? Everything comes from you. All we're doing is giving back what we've been given from your generous hand. And in verse 16 of that chapter, all this abundance we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name belongs to you. It was yours in the first place. And Haggai puts it bluntly, I own the silver, I own the gold. Any questions? You know, that understanding of God being the owner and you and I being the stewards escapes many of us. For many of us are like the rich man that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 12, when it says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. Now, the thing about this plenty is that it was a gift from God. This man's plenty came from the fertility of the ground, from the seasonal rain, from the sunshine, from the daily dew, and from the mysterious power of the seed to grow and multiply itself. The creator birthed this man's abundance. It wasn't his doing hardly at all. The best he could do is till the ground and plant the seed. Everything else is actually the gift of God's provision and bounty to this man. And yet, as you read the parable, there isn't one hint of gratitude from this rich man. You know, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, when you drink from the stream, you should remember the spring. The wisdom of that proverb was completely lost on this man. And it goes on, it says, he thought, he dialogued within himself. Now that phrase should alert us to the fact that something is dreadfully wrong with this picture. Because in the Middle East, in the villages, people really, really made decisions by themselves. Nearly all decisions, from big ones to even small ones, were made in community. Even relatively small matters were, were decided on after long discussions with friends and family. In this instance, he's dialoguing with himself. There aren't any dialogue partners. This man lives and decides in isolation. And one insidious characteristic of wealth, for he was a rich man, is its power to isolate people from others. It isolates the one who possesses it. Isaiah spoke of that in Isaiah chapter 15. Uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 8, where he says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. There is something about the power of wealth that isolates people, and the acquisitiveness of this man is already subtly destroying his life. He goes on to say, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns. I will store all my crops, my goods, and I will say to my soul. And as you read this parable, the I, me, my, and mine words abound. Nobody else enters his equation until finally God interrupts his solitary dialogue with the word, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Even his own soul didn't belong to him. You have been summoned. 
you will give an account of your stewardship. And he found to his great surprise the things that he thought were and behaved as if they were his, in fact, weren't. This rich man didn't have the revelation that Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18 could have afforded him, which says, if you start thinking to yourself, I did all this, and all by myself, I'm rich, it's all mine. Well, think again. Remember that God, your God, gave you the strength to produce all this wealth so as to confirm the covenant that he promised to your ancestors as it is today. I did all this. It's all mine. And so often, like the rich man, we talk about our possessions, our wealth, our property, our barns, our crops. And that language masks, I think, a wrong relationship with the material resources that have, in fact, been entrusted to us. And we view ourselves as owners rather than stewards. And that mistaken um, understanding has a direct impact on our ability to be radically generous people. You see, we tend to imagine that giving away our resources somehow represents a loss for us. When we give away our resources, our time, our energy, our hospitality, our attention to somebody else, then naturally, as far as we think, it means less for us. Because we tend to function with what we call a zero-sum um, approach to economics. Zero-sum thinking basically means there's a limited amount of a, a pie, if you like. And if I take slices of that pie and give that to somebody else, then it leaves me with less. But can I suggest to you that God doesn't function actually with a zero-sum game? He creates wealth. He's the ultimate pie maker, if you like. And when we are generous with his resources, there's more, not less. The resources that he asks us to be generous with are not ours. They belong to him. And you know when you say something like that, you can almost hear somebody kind of thinking, what are you talking about? I've worked for all I've got. I invested blood, sweat, and tears to get to the place where I am presently. How, can, how dare you say it's not mine? Well, let me ask you a question. Who gave you the blood, sweat, and tears? Who gave you the energy? Where did you get the strength from? That's what Deuteronomy chapter eight is saying. You, you, they aren't yours. They aren't yours in the same way that that rich man's soul wasn't his. You are not your own. 1 Corinthians six tells us that you are not your own. As a redeemed person, you are not your own twice. You're not your own by virtue of creation and you're not your own by virtue of redemption. You've been bought with the price. You know, when it comes to stewarding material resources at least, I find it incredible that God as the owner trusts me as the steward to set my own salary. He does the same with you. We are trusted to draw down the needed funds to pay for our living expenses. One of the crucial decisions we get to make as Jesus' disciples is to determine what is a reasonable amount for me to live on? I know that whatever that amount will be legitimately differs from person to person and household to household. But I also know for all of us that managed resources should not be illegitimately hoarded or spent in excess. It is not 
simply yours to be handled in that manner. What would you think of a scenario where an employer gives his employee, gives his steward $1,000, say, to invest wisely in his master's name and in his master's interest? And the, empl- and the employee takes $980 of that and lives on it and spends $20 in his master's name and interest. I suspect most of us would see the complete lack of integrity, if not straight out robbery or fraudulence in such a scenario. And yet, that is the exact situation for most evangelical Christians who on average give about 2% of their income toward God's purposes. The 980 we spend on ourselves, we give away 20 bucks. I wonder that perhaps that's the reason that Malachi charged his generation with robbing God with regard to their lack of giving. And they, like so many others of uh, of other generations, if you like, have not understood the principle of stewardship. It's been calculated that uh, if all evangelical Christians were reduced in terms of their wages to being on social security benefits, and yet that they tithed on that benefit, the church would see an increase in giving of 300%. Something is tragically amiss. And I suspect that what, at least in part, is amiss is that we tend to think and function like tight-fisted owners rather than open-handed stewards. Stewards can give generously without fear of loss and or scarcity. So we are stewards, we are not owners. Second foundational revelation that I think undergirds a life of radical pervasive generosity is that we need to grasp how extravagantly generous God has been to us. How extravagantly generous God has showed himself to you and me. Now he's expressed that and manifested that extravagant generosity in the created world that we see round about us. For example, in Psalm 145 verse 16, it says, generous to a fault, you lavish your favor on all of your creatures. We see how extravagantly generous God has been toward us in redemption. Psalm 130 verse 7 says, O Israel, wait and watch for God. With God's arrival comes love. With God's arrival comes generous redemption. So God has expressed a manifest radical generosity in the way that he's created the world and in the way that he's redeemed you and me. And his generosity to us is ultimately meant to birth a generosity in us that then flows through us. Jesus illustrates how this principle works in Matthew chapter 18 with the medium of forgiveness, generous forgiveness. You know the story. He tells the story of a man who's been forgiven a great debt. The man then goes out and demands from another a payment of a debt much less than the one that he's just been released from. And having experienced extravagant forgiveness, he's then miserly in the forgiveness that he ministers to another person. And all of us can see how incongruous this is. The story is meant to read, having been generously forgiven, he went out and generously forgave. 
There is something about generosity when we see it in God's approach to us that's meant to release that in us toward other people. You know, when an extravagantly generous salvation came to Zacchaeus, the tax collector's house, he immediately comes out and responds with extravagant generosity toward other people. Having received it, he ministered. Profoundly graced, he becomes gracious. There is something tragically amiss when God generously ministers to us and we are miserly with the resources, the time, the energy, the forgiveness that he has expressed graciously toward us. There's something wrong. Read with me, would you, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 8 through 15 in the message translation it says this. God can pour on the blessings in astonishing ways so that, you are, that you're ready for anything and everything. More than just ready to do what needs to be done. As one psalmist puts, puts it, he throws caution to the wind, giving to the needy in reckless abandon. His right living, right giving ways never run out, never wear out. This most generous God who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more than extravagant with you. He gives you something you can then give away, which grows into full-formed lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way, so that you can be generous in every way, producing with us great praise to God. Paul says to the Corinthians, carry out this social relief work. Carrying out this social relief work involves far more than helping meet the bare needs of poor Christians. It also produces abundant and bountiful thanksgivings to God. This relief offering is a prod to live at your very best, showing your gratitude to God by being openly obedient to the plain meaning of the message of Christ. You show your gratitude through your generous offerings to, the, to your needy brothers and sisters and really toward everyone. Meanwhile, moved by the extravagance of God in your lives, they'll respond by praying for you in passionate intercession for whatever you need. Thank God for this gift, his gift. No language can praise it enough. You can sum that up in various ways, but basically God has been extravagantly generous to you. Be extravagantly generous in all of the mediums that are available to you. Live a pervasively, radically generous life because that's the God that has sired you and is raising you to be just like him. That passage, by the way, uh, opens up and segues into a third foundational element for a life of generosity. It talks a lot about uh, it talks a lot about gratitude, the role that gratitude plays in undergirding a life of sustained, pervasive, radical generosity. He says in that passage, "Show your gratitude through your generous offerings." I think gratitude and generosity are like Siamese twins. It's hard to know which comes first, which comes second. They almost seem to be in a chicken and egg relationship with each other. Where you have one, you necessarily have the other. Brene Brown in her book, Daring Greatly, says, scarcity and fear make us ungenerous. The opposite of scarcity is enough. And practicing gratitude is how we acknowledge there's enough. A life of gratitude confronts the mentality of fear and scarcity that inhibits and stunts our potential generosity. And, and I think the depth and willingness 
with which we are generous is a direct reflection of the gratitude that grips our life. Now, the subject of gratitude and thankfulness deserves a separate and fuller study time that we don't have, but let me make a few remarks concerning it, because I think that gratitude not only undergirds and fuels a life of generosity, gratitude actually is a medium by which, a medium separate by which we can actually be incredibly generous to people. It strikes me that there are a few people, and perhaps including Christians, who pervasively and radically are ungenerous with expressions of gratitude. And too often in our families, with our colleagues, in the community of faith where we worship, we are meager, we are miserly with our expressions of thanks. Whether it's a sense of entitlement or of bitterness or of social ineptness or of plain rudeness, it seems to me there there are a lot of people who simply never say thank you. I appreciate that. And I think such an ungenerous attitude is deeply offensive to God. Look at this passage in Deuteronomy. Chapter 28, verse 47, 48. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in a time of prosperity. Because there was no gratitude. Effectively, that says. Therefore, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord your God has sent among you. Because... Therefore, this is cause and effect. Because you are ungracious, because you, are in, you, you manifest ingratitude, therefore, a complete lack of gratitude in the abundance of all things ultimately leads to a loss of all things. You know, Romans chapter one is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. It chronicles a sad decline of people into complete moral degradation. And that decline begins in verse 21 where it says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But in their foolish thinking, they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, the ultimate and complete degradation that this chapter outlined doesn't begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the entitled, self-satisfied heart of one for whom the words, thank you, are redundant. Such a simple phrase, thank you. So powerful, it can transform. I've seen, as a teacher, kids transformed by a teacher who was generous in his expressions of appreciation at their changed behavior or their good work. And I've seen them rise to be people that they would never have otherwise been if the words, well done, thankful, good on you, you're doing well, had not been used. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, that's a powerful thing. People talk to me about, how do I know the will of God? And I know, you know, I ask that question too. I want to be in the will of God. Well, here's one way of being in the will of God. Be generous with the thanksgiving that should naturally flow from a heart that sees the created order and God's extravagance in it and understands redemption and God's extravagance toward you in that. Thank you is appropriate. I think actually we could logically 
logically express that verse in its negative. If you aren't giving thanks, then you're out of the will of God. It's that clear. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Can I suggest that one way we can be incredibly generous is by cultivating a life of gratitude that is expressed. And what that does is that generosity flows from it and, and in turn fuels it. You know, I've sp I spoke at the beginning of the series about the various mediums by which we can be generous. When somebody like myself gets up and says they're going to preach on generosity, most people immediately think, oh, here we go, money. And of course it includes money. It is not less than the resources that God has put in your hands. But there are more mediums available to you to be generous with than simply money. And one of them is, is words. One of them is the expression of kind, gracious, thank-filled words. Be generous with your words, grateful words, kind words, words of appreciation, encouraging words. Friends, individuals and homes could be transformed by generous, thank-filled words. And in my experience, homes and relationships that resound with grateful thank yous and, uh, and generous words are, are, are heaven-like places. On the contrary, homes and relationships that are marked by miserly murmuring and complaining are hellish places. Now you might be thinking, well, I shouldn't have to say thank you. They should just do it. You know, I've heard parents say that. Nobody, nobody bothers thanking me. Why should I be the one that always has to say thanks? You know, they, they behave like babies, always needing their ego stroked with how good they are and how thankful I am. Why don't they just grow up and do the job? Well, you can, you can argue yourself out of gratitude if you want to. I guess we've all done that. Or perhaps you can be the generous agent of change in your family by being the one who generously expresses gratitude over little things. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for picking that up. Thank you for making your bed. Thank you for doing the dishes. Yeah, well, I shouldn't have to say that. They should just, yeah, I know. But words change things. And generosity in words has incredible power to alter things. Let me finish with Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 in the message translation. It says, be gracious. And the Greek means express grace and favor and gratitude. Be gracious in your speech. The goal is to bring out the best in others in a conversation, not put them down, not cut them out. That's powerful. You might be sitting there and just saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those effusive, overflowing people. You know, I'm just not much given to outward displays and expressions of gratitude. I am inwardly thankful, though. Thankfulness and thankfulness are not the same thing. And I suspect that if you handed your child something and they never said anything, and you said, I beg your pardon, and they said, I'm thinking thanks, it wouldn't carry much weight. And you would say, don't think it, say it. Silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone, and it will transform no one, least of all you. Fred DeWilt Van Emberg said, and if you want to be thankful, thank God that you don't have a name like that. 
He says, none is more impoverished, impoverished than the one who has no gratitude. Gratitude is a currency that we can mint for ourselves and spend without fear of bankruptcy. You don't have to run, you don't have to run out of thank yous. There's a never-ending supply. How about the next time you're faced with a situation at your work where normally you would just take it from the secretary without even thinking to say thanks. You stop and simply say thank you for all the hard work that you do. It is appreciated. I tell you, we could transform our work environments by expressing generous thanks rather than simply taking, you get paid for it, what do you want me to do? Bow down and scrape to you? You see, such miserliness. We're called to be a people who are generous. Generous in the resources that we, mani- that w- that we manage. Generous in the words that we speak. Generous with the forgiveness that w- we have been graced with. And having been graced, we become a gracious people. I think those three concepts, understanding that we are stewards, not owners, and there will be a time when we are summoned. What have you done with the resources that I put in your hand? Well, Lord, I gave 20 bucks. Understanding that we are tasked with these resources to see the kingdom of God go forward, to see lives changed. Passing on, secondly, the grace that we've been shown. Having seen God's extravagant generosity to us, that becomes a foundational concept in the way that we are generous to others. And lastly, expressing and cultivating a life of gratitude. Those things, I think, are foundational for building a life of generosity. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.